it's good to be strong. And I'm glad I was raised to be a strong woman. Because I'm, I'm knocking it in the ass right now, okay? <laughs> really. And that's only because I had strong women to knock me when I was little to say, stand up. You got to be a woman. You got to handle your own. You got to be independent. Because who's to stay? There's no happy ever after all the time. Don't believe that fairy tale. Have your own money and your own shit. That's who in the fuck I am. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a name? No, I ain't got no name. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, just a heads up, uh, this podcast, this episode is going to be a little bit longer. We feel like black women, at the very least, deserve a little bit more of our time. So just wanted to give you a heads up. Also, we thought it'd be interesting not only for you to hear about raising black daughters, not only from my sister's perspective as Nia being raised, but from my mom as well. So uh, listen up for that. Welcome back, Mom and Dad. Thank you for being brave and coming back again after our last episode. We weren't sure if you were going to talk to us again, so it's good to have you here. Nia was born in Louisville, Kentucky. Correct. Uh, which, um, would you have said at the time uh, that Louisville was like the South oh. and racist? There was racism there? Super South. And that's why when Nia turned three, I looked at your dad and said, we got to get out of here before she before she turns five, mm. because I didn't want to deal with that. Mm. Um, because even though we had friends, all cultures, mm. Kentucky was still very racist, um, but Ohio is too. Mm. And I wanted to get out of the South South because I just um, felt like it was time. I wanted to get her out before she actually went into the school system. So that was our goal. Did you feel the same way about Louisville? Dad? Well, if if anyone out there is familiar with where Cincinnati geographically lasts in, in comparison to Kentucky, right across the river, I mean, you can go right across the river and there's there's a difference. Okay. I personally, I didn't think Louisville was as deep south as you get into the Mississippis and the Alabama and stuff like that, but it definitely was the south, and there definitely was a difference. I, I, I think uh, they run a big event called the Kentucky Derby, and the song that they sing, the Kentucky Derby, I, I don't know if they still play it now. They changed the words. They changed the words. So it was very, they talk about, I can't remember some of the words, but back then, back then it was considered very racist. The song. The song. Was racist. Uh-huh. The song. And that was their biggest event. Like in Indianapolis, you had Indianapolis 500. Kentucky Derby was the biggest event, you know, in Kentucky, probably in the country. So it was steed in the racism, the slavery, and, and all that. Mm -hmm. And also, I remember when busing came about. Exactly. In, the, in Louisville. Exactly. And it wasn't that big in Ohio, 
right. where black kids went to white schools and all of that. But in Kentucky and Louisville, um, the buses were being hit. And, I mean, it was awful. Um, white folks in Kentucky did not want black kids at their school. You would have thought you were in 1950, mm -hmm. 1960. But it wasn't. We were in school in the 70s, right. and they still, it was still that same thickness of hate, mm. you know. And I, and I knew by 1985, when you were born, it, it was still there. So I wanted to get you out before you started school. Well, can I, because I'm going somewhere with this, I swear. Okay. Um, uh, can you talk about the time... Um, that I've heard you refer to when you took Nia to the dentist's office. I'm pretty sure it was the dentist's office. Uh -huh. And it was uh, the monkey. Oh, it? no. It was the pediatrician's office mm. in, in Kentucky. Um, and oh, this, this pediatrician was well known throughout the city. In fact, I had girlfriends that were nurses and they suggested this pediatrician to me. And we were good. I mean, I'm not going to say his name, but we were good. So I take Nia for a first visit to him after um, whatever, six-week six checkup or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the nurse comes in and she says, um, are we ready for this little monkey? So being the woman I am, I said, okay, I'm going to need you to get this. So the doctor came in, I told him what was said, and he dealt with it, you know. Um, but she came back and she apologized and she was like, I'm sorry, uh, I saved monkey for all the kids. But you can't say that to my child. You can't call my child a monkey because me being of color, that has always been the reference that I've heard through years from people not of color. So now you have insulted me and you're trying to tell me you're not aware. So it was a lesson for her that day. I'm so glad you told this story. I do remember you telling this story. So for all the pediatricians out there and the nurses that call kids monkeys, because it's very common, still happens. This is why you don't do that. The sun shines bright. In the old Kentucky home to summer and everyone's gay. So let's talk about this racist Kentucky Derby song <laughs> <laughs> for a minute. So the song is titled My Old Kentucky Home. Um, it was written uh, back around the 1920s um, by Stephen Foster. And it has an interesting history. It, it's funny, you know, um, that for mom and dad, the perception of the song, and I imagine for a lot of black folks, was racist. Um, there's an article written by Alex Lube and Stephen Lube uh, from the Smithsonian that kind of talk about the history of the song. So the song was initially written um, kind of as a way for um, to bring awareness to and to condemn. Uh, slave owners who had um, separated uh, black families, mm. essentially, and, and, and sold uh, black families and the effects of, of those things. And so the, the Kentucky Derby song that they sing today is a different 
has different lyrics, but the original lyrics talk about, um, well, one, they refer to black people as darkies. <laughs> so I can imagine as a black person hearing white people sing that song, I'd be like, yeah, um, it's racist. Yeah, exactly. It's super problematic. Um, but I think uh, in this article and in general, what it brings up is the idea that um, that message is kind of lost and was lost when the people who were singing it were these affluent people that were at Churchill Downs. Mm -hmm. um, and just, I think that's a greater message in general when we think about who the people who deliver these messages um, with along the same lines uh, that a nurse <laughs> delivering a message and calling you a monkey girl. <laughs> Every time I hear that story, it put me on 10. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so which was just shocking, like you having an, an experience, a racialized racist experience before you're one. Mm -hmm. The fact that that's happening to black kids, truly concerning um, and disheartening. Um, but I think that shows the importance of speaking to children mm -hmm. and preparing them in certain ways. That's why I'm pro preparing children for racism. Um, but for me, it also brings up this point of um, uh, good intentions, equality, and equity, um, like white people's good intentions specifically, because I think the nurse thought, well, I call all kids little monkeys, mm -hmm. right? And so when we think about um, equality, it's treating everyone the same, but as we saw within this, that can be problematic too, mm -hmm. when we don't curtail um, and accommodate in ways we need to. And that's why I think I push for equity and period. And that um, why I still would, even as well intended as her thing was, to me it's still racist, it's still problematic. And uh, her reasoning of, well, it being equality is still not enough. Mm -hmm. um, and if Saying she, I call all kids this. Exactly. And if she wanted to call you a little one, I have a problem with black people being referred to as animals in <laughs> general. <laughs> Let <laughs> me first say that, but out of all the animals to call you a monkey, a little monkey, no, call you a little, I don't know, a little lioness, a jaguar, uh, why, and why can't you be so, like some fierce or smart, a little owl, my little owl, <laughs> uh, something like that, but anyway, yeah, those are just my thoughts on that, so, um, we have to do better, and we can do that, I think, by starting, by having a more equitable approach. 100% agree. Um, um, can you think back to your childhood um, and think about what kind of things stuck out to you, um, specifically in the lens of lessons that your mother or your aunts or even sisters taught you? Um, what were things that were important to them and important to teach you? Well, one thing that my mom and my aunt always spoke to all of the females in our in my family, be independent. Don't be dependent on a man for anything. Mm. Hold your own. Because they were housewives. And so they, they would talk about, you know, wanting to work. Well, their husbands didn't want them to work. Uh, and Norma's could allude to the same thing. Husbands didn't want them to work. They wanted them to stay at home, raise kids. My mother wasn't able to work until we all were in school. Um, 
So she preached that all the time. And the other thing they talked about was a man can put on a shirt and tie and still be a man. You got to be a lady at all times. So that means you can't go around sleeping around with everybody like men may do. Um, you got to have pride in yourself. And so those are some of the things that were instilled um, in me as a child. Like be independent. Be able to have your own money so you can make your own decisions. Were there any lessons um, through the lens of black womanhood uh, specifically in taking into consideration gender and race that you can think of? Gender and race. My mom just talked about being working in the cotton fields as a child. Mm. And um, not that it was on a plantation or something, but she grew up in Alabama and they would go to some farm and, and pick cotton. And she felt that most of the kids that she grew up with, that's what they were doing. And she wanted us to be able to make a decision of what kind of career that we would have because she wasn't afforded that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And um, that black people didn't have to just pick cotton. Mm -hmm. There are other options you could do. Don't be like me, be better than me. Mm -hmm. You know, um, because by the time she became a young adult, I mean, she graduated from high school, but still couldn't, wasn't hired for any, still for menial tasks. Mm. She wasn't hired to go into office. And that's because it was never afforded to her. It wasn't offered to her. Mm. So she wanted more for us as black women mm. to be able to do whatever we wanted to do that she wasn't allowed to do. It, it seems like, especially given the time and context, there's a lot of uh, about how your mother was affected by racism. Mm -hmm. So who taught you about racism? Who taught you about racism? Or how did you come to learn about racism? I would say my mom and my dad. Um, my dad went and he fought in World War II. And one of the things that he said to us, I thought going over fighting the war would coming back it would be better for my children but it's not he talked about not being able to be on a ship after he had fought for america because the white soldiers didn't want the black soldiers on the same ship that he on. so he would say and my mom would say as well there are certain things that you have to do to be able to make it in this society there's certain things that you cannot say, you know, and growing up, we had to talk in a certain manner when we were around certain people, you know, to me, I call it bilingual. When you're around right. people that didn't look like you, you right. had to speak the King's English. Right. And then when you're with your friends, you had to speak a certain way. But I just, um, I knew there were differences and they didn't call it racism then, you know, they just called it being, you know, uh, white people's ways. And you had to learn their ways in order to deal and make it in the society, you know, learn and, how to walk their walk. And, and I just like to add, uh, I came up, uh, this, uh, my background, 
I had all brothers. So, uh, and, and, and my mother was the kind of the only female mother and, and my, my brother's uh, wife, wife was the only female in the household. And, and I know with uh, my mother's generation as well as Kitty's mother's generation, it was just thought that the education was the great equalizer. That, you know, uh, I don't even think my mother, and she was raised in Cincinnati. My father, my father was from the South, Washington, Georgia, but my mother was raised here in Cincinnati. And uh, to her, she didn't, I don't even think she made it out of high school. Mm -hmm. But for her, it was that education is going to be the key uh, with dealing with especially white folks, okay? If you don't, and, and even your mother talked about her mother even had a high school education but still got, you know, certain jobs that black folks wasn't, uh, uh, were not getting, you know? For me, I was trying to make sure we so that whatever career she selected, that I put her in those areas. So when she was five, she said she wanted to be a doctor. So I looked around in the city of Cincinnati to try to figure out where can, where could I put her? And there were several programs that were offered um, for summer, after school, um, which were math, science oriented. She also um, talked about once she was junior, senior, that she really wanted to get married. Did I say that? Yeah, you did. I don't remember that. That she all. wanted to get married and she was looking at the University of Pennsylvania. So I said to her, I said, well, if you need want to get married, you need to go where the black men are. Are you sure I said that? No, I'm positive. <laughs> okay. And I said, Spelman Morehouse. Let's do that. <laughs> I do remember you saying you have to go where the black men are. Right, right. And just for the record, you told me I wanted to be a doctor. I said I wanted to be a nurse. You said, nope, you want to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing that was similar. I told her I wanted to be a teacher. She said, for me to have struggled like this to see you to private school? No. <laughs> <laughs> and look what happened. Yes. Okay. Um, and some of the other areas um, that I tried to shape her was just being kind and also uh, being sure of herself. Um, Nia was sure of herself from the time she was in the second grade. And maybe that's why I really didn't focus on the talk that I had with Nevin versus with Nia because when Nia was in the second grade, I used to help her with her homework and she thought she was smarter than me then. <laughs> and she would say, you know, I don't, I don't really want your help. I don't need your help. So, um, I kind of sounded like a jerk. Yeah, you were, <laughs> but I let it go because you were a self-starter. Um, you had direction and I knew you had a spicy tongue. So I knew in any situation you could talk your, the person into doing whatever, cause you've always had that gift. Um, so my concern was not giving you the talk about putting your hand on the wheel and doing what the police officer said or whatever. And I think during that time, I didn't hear as much uh, about Black women being abused like we do now by police officers. Uh, so I think 
if I had to do it again, the talk would be different. I think it would be a lot stronger and knowing, you know, different biases and what's going on as far as you versus your white classmates and how, how it look, how that lens should be. And dad, that, that same question is directed to you. So, um, uh, why wasn't racism, um, and bias a big item to prepare Nia for? And if those weren't big items, what were to you? Well, with Nia being, uh, your mother and I first born, um, we, we were new at that. We have new raising kids and, uh, a credit to your, your mother, um, I knew that she came from a long lineage of strong black women. Uh, her mother, her grandmother, her aunts. So from that standpoint, I wasn't as concerned about her being a woman because she had a lot of role models. And, and similar to your mother, I wasn't as concerned because she was a female. Uh, how unfairly or fairly that was at the time, I wasn't as concerned. And and plus, she was very well-rounded as a, even though she may have had, as your mother say, a spicy tongue, she was pretty well-rounded and had an unbelievable people skills. I just recall taking her to the uh, to a store and she would have to talk to everyone, everyone, the cashiers before we got out of the store. And she just had that type of personality. If if there was any concern, I, I would think that she probably could talk her way out of it. But I wasn't as concerned about her from a racial standpoint as I would have been a son. Yeah. And to add to that, I just remember moving to a, a predominantly white neighborhood. And the first thing that the neighbor said when they met Nia was, wow, she's so sure of herself. <laughs> and she was three years old. Mm. I mean, she's always been super sure of herself and pretty much like Nas is today, mm. just involved in a conversation and had no fear whether you were they were her age or if they were an adult. So never really had to question how you would act in any situation because to me, You've always been grounded. Yes, sir, what were the top priorities for you in raising me? Uh, my top priorities with you again. I'm a I'm a, I'm a new parent, brand new. Um, uh, was the youngest of my family, so so that was a very different experience mm -hmm. for me. Uh, but uh, we are very fortunate to have someone that came out of the womb just ready to go, ready to handle it and, and tackle life. Um, I think my biggest concern, if, if even if was a concern, was making sure you just had the right opportunity, making sure that uh, you were definitely one of those ones that if we led you to water, like leading a horse to water, they would, they would drink. You can't make them drink. I was definitely assured that you would take a drink of it. But I, I think that from an early age, and this is something your mother and I kind of went through, 
from an early age, you knew, in my opinion, how to evolve, how to go from one society to another. Mm. Okay. And I think that's something that a black person in our generation had to learn how to go from the black society to the white society and, and still be successful in doing that. And I, I just think that that from a from a male perspective, as far as raising a black daughter, uh, my focus and concentration was that black daughter's got to get a, an education. I mean, something more than high school. I, I just knew. And, and luckily for us, our daughter was already there. I mean, already there as far as having those aspirations of being in the medical field, being a, a nurse or a doctor or something more than just making it through high school. So Nevin, I'd love to share this article that I found with you and our listeners. It's entitled Gendered Racial Socialization in Black Families, Mother's Beliefs, Approaches, and Advocacy. This was a dissertation by the now Dr. Aaliyah Holman. Um, shout out, congratulations. Yeah, I know. She's, you know, she's a she's a doc, I think, at Fordham. So shout out to her doing big things. Um, I really love this article because Dr. Holman discusses how black mothers think about and approach teaching their children about how to behave in society, which is a term that we all call now socialization. Um, And it teaches them uh, how to kind of behave in the world, but she looks at it specifically through the lenses of race and gender. Um, And there's been work done on this in the past, but I really like this because she looks at this intersectionality about how black mothers talk to their sons versus Mm. talk to their daughters. Mm. And so I think that's a really important contribution to the literature. So she found that black mothers felt that both boys and girls needed to have a sense of uh, self-worth and racial identity, but they did say that they had specific concerns for their sons. Um, And that included physical safety and fair treatment. Where they thought that daughters needed to be socialized in a different way was about their appearance, Mm. about physical beauty, their hair texture, and their skin color, which didn't really come up much in our conversation Mm -hmm. with mom and dad. So I thought that was interesting, but I absolutely can see how mothers would feel like their daughters need to be socialized in that way and thinking that they're beautiful um, despite the messages that they're receiving. Mm. So I think, you know, some of the reasons why she thinks that uh, mothers were talking to their sons differently than their daughters is because of their perceptions about the different challenges faced by boys and girls or black women and black men. Mm. Mothers felt like black males faced more racial challenges than girls. Mm. And that's why those conversations were more crucial or important for boys than girls. Mothers felt like the physical safety, the black body, um, was more of a threat for boys and not as much as a threat for girls. One quote um, that a mother said in, in um, Dr. Holman's dissertation was that it's harder to be a black man in America than a black woman. Some mothers felt that white people don't fear black women in the same way. And I know that came up a lot with our conversation with uh, mom and dad is that the fear or that threat is not the same level mm-hmm. for black women. And so you don't get discrimination in the same way. And so that's why their conversation to black boys was more about um, discrimination so that they can protect themselves. Mothers also thought that girls were more likely to internalize messages of negative self-image and unattractiveness and their desirability, mm-hmm. which again is, is really interesting to me because it's, it's also still rooted in the gaze of like 
uh, a potential partner, a male, mm. generally, is like how you interpret your worth to society. Mothers and maybe daughters um, felt like it's how, it's how they looked mm. versus like protection, safety. Those messages were different. Um, and finally, she felt like mother socializations um, messages were prompted by kids' experiences, so their encounters with racism by peers, teachers, and police, that a lot a lot of times they talked about it after something had happened. I didn't see a lot about preventative messages, but there are there were um, conversations that it was like preparing them for bias, but a lot of it was in kind of co- the context of after an experience had happened too. Mm. So it's interesting. What I mean, you know, um, I think that showed up definitely in our conversations with raising black sons and now with raising black daughters. But I wanted to know what what you thought about that. Yeah, I think. And when was the article? Um, um so I think her dissertation okay. was twenty twelve. So okay. that's like almost eight year or eight years old now. Well, and the reason I asked that is because I think a big piece of mom and dad's. Um, justification for how they raised you Mm -hmm. um, did was based on the difference how they raised you in comparison to me was based on what was going on in society and this historical context so I was curious about uh, what time period was this research done um, because and how that might change now and the view of um, black women being a threat and physical threat because I think that's one thing that um, dad does talk about is like the women's fight for equality in general and this kind of um, uh, dark this this dark accomplishment of equality that bl- black women have quote unquote and I'm doing rabbit ears <laughs> achieved yeah. um, and being seen as an equal threat right um so so that's one thing I think that sticks out to me. and But it's still this, I don't know, I'm still wrestling with all these ideas of um, what are latent, some latent sexist messages where we're like the key, um, the key messages is around appearance and mm-hmm. things like that, internalization. But what, what are your thoughts around what's presented in this article and, or in this dissertation? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think um, we can see now that mom and dad were not alone, are not alone yeah. in their approach to parenting girl, um, you versus me, a boy versus a girl, in that the messages don't seem to be as blatant right. around um, discrimination and safety and, um, you know, that preparation phase. Right. And... So, you know, not not to give them like a, a slip and, and <laughs> excuse right. them, but they're not they're obviously not alone. Sure. So I think that's important to say. But also I think it's just really interesting that in our conversation it didn't come up about beauty, but I definitely do um know that for many parents, especially with daughters, they struggle a lot around that. Yeah about daughters coming home not feeling pretty, daughters wanting their hair straight or want to look a certain way, and then that's how the conversation is approached. For sure. Particularly, at least then, I don't know about now, but particularly then about hair weaves. She talks about that in her dissertation, about how mothers felt like they didn't want their daughters to have weaves, but also wanted them to feel pretty. So essentially, like, 
caved in and allowed them to have weaves, even though they personally didn't agree with it. Oh, wow. So trying to promote beauty and their self-esteem and their self-confidence while also struggling with this racial identity and pride and all of those messages too, which it was interesting to me again, because it didn't come up with um, our conversation Uh, with our parents. Well, let me ask you, because I'm I'm interested in me knowing who mom is as she describes herself. Um, I'll let her words speak for herself, but um, I think, you know, she, she's a beautiful woman and knows that she is and imagine I imagine that she thought you would know that you're a beautiful woman <laughs> and see your model so I'm curious if um if you ever felt like at times being raised you weren't beautiful and if that was an issue for you you know I I can't think of like instances where I felt not beautiful I'm sure it came up but I'm just thinking like you know, for my elementary school years, I was primarily in a black Catholic school and there was a lot of black girls and they had hair that was like mine. Like growing up, my hair was permed. Mm -hmm. um, So it wasn't in its like natural state. And then when we moved to Cincinnati, I was only in this kind of white Catholic school for two years. And then after that, I was in, you know, all girl schools. I was all girl high school and then all girl college was a black Um, college obviously and so I don't know that I felt that pressure Mm. because I wasn't always like faced with the male gaze Mm. if that makes sense so I was able to like live my life Um, but at the same time I like I, I mean again I wasn't wearing my hair natural so I also kind of conformed to this white ideal of beauty which and like straight hair I wore weave sometimes, um, so you know I also wasn't like I didn't do any of those things. Yeah. Can I say also for the record, and this is not to, I'm not in the business of saving people from their feelings, but I do <laughs> want to add some because historical context is important. Yeah, like there, I feel like it wasn't like the natural movement that it, that that it is now, right? Right. Um, and I don't remember, and you can speak for yourself. You ever critiquing? people who were natural or yeah. anything you know what I, mean? I didn't see enough of them exactly and it, it wasn't it wasn't a thing it wasn't really. a thing my first time that i can remember and i know we're not really talking about hair but the first time i can remember being like amazed with black people keep keeping their hair in their uh, natural state is when i was an adult going to med school and living in dc right I was like, oh my God, you know, like, wow, black people have embraced their hair. And in Cincinnati, I didn't grow up really seeing that everybody had straight hair, you know, or yeah, I was going to say Orlocks, but that actually wasn't super common. It was just our one aunt, you know, play aunt that had a locks, right? So yeah, I don't remember that being a recurrent theme. And maybe to your point, it's because mom had so much self-confidence that maybe it just like rubbed off on me that like mom's beautiful. She knows she's beautiful. She, you know, thought I was beautiful and made me come with that same kind of sense. But I will say mom has talked about when she was little not feeling beautiful Mm. and feeling like the ugly duckling, Mm. partly because of her skin Skin color. color, You remember that, like her being darker Mm. and like, you know, and I I remember growing up and putting my arm against her arm and I'm like, mom, we're not that much different. Like we're, Mm. you're not much darker than I am. Like, I don't understand. Right. Like, why wouldn't you be beautiful? 
Yeah. Well, and I asked you that question, and I know, like, that wasn't the specific conversation that our route went with our parents, but because it's in the article, but to also juxtapose this question, I'm curious, did you ever, because beauty didn't seem to ever come up for you as a thing, as it did for folks in this article, but did you ever feel like, um, did safety around race, racism come up for you? And when I say safety, not necessarily just a physical sense, as I think like they talked about in the article for preparing their sons, but safety in terms of not only physicality, but also did you ever felt like your blackness might have put you at risk for being a victim to something, whether that be microaggressions, racist assaults, um, in any kind of context? Yeah, I, um, I, I'm not sure that I would have eloquently thought about it like that you know growing up but certainly like when I started driving you know Mm. mom has always had really nice cars Mm. and so there would be times that like I would be scared to drive those cars Mm. um, especially at night I remember one specific instance you know, kids being kids. Yeah. Um, I remember, like, kind of racing mm. a, my mom's car. <laughs> oh, does she know this? I don't know if she okay, knows Okay, they're going to find out. We were, I was, um, so my cousin yeah. was, had, was driving, like, this Cadillac. Okay. And then I was driving mom's car, which at the time was a Mercedes. Mm-hmm. And we were, like, racing down the streets in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, gotcha. just, like trying to figure out who could go the fastest. Oh my gosh, Nia the Rebel. Oh my gosh, I'm I do like this. fast cars. I always have. I would love a fast car and now. Is that why you drive so fast today? That's what mom said. I don't think I drive that fast. I think I drive with the flow of traffic. Okay, okay, girl. Whatever you say, sis. So we were racing down this um, the street in Cincinnati and I got pulled over. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard this story. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. I got pulled over. My cousin didn't. So I was actually happy that I was the person pulled over though because I don't know if she had a driver's license okay. or whatever. But I knew at that time I was like, Yes, I was going fast, but this other car was going fast. I think it's because I was driving a nicer car. A nicer car. Okay. And I remember registering, like, this is why this is probably happening. Yes, mm-hmm. I was driving fast, but also I'm a black girl mm-hmm. in this Mercedes. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I remember being really scared about that. I can't remember what happened. I'm sure, like, I, I don't know if she gave me a warning or a ticket or what it was. But I remember thinking this is why this happened, you mm. know, versus the other car. Because the other car was nice, but it was like an older, much older car. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that answered your question at no, all. No, <laughs> no, no. I think I think it, it, it did because what I hear is like there was some awareness at this age that... Um, this this interaction could be because of racism. Yeah. Um, and it could end badly. Yeah. Because at that time, right, the Timothy Thomas had already happened. And yeah, I think so. While, you know, um, Black Lives Matter has really brought, like, this to the forefront of conversations now, um, of police and, uh, and interactions with black folks, it might not have been, like, the, at the forefront of conversations at that time. Yeah. But given our specific context in Cincinnati and police and black people relations, I'm sure that that played a part. The other like specific instance I can remember thinking about race and and 
maybe not so much racism, but certainly race within the educational context. Mm. You know, mom talks a lot about um, she didn't prepare me for racism because I was already, like, woke. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because in grade school, I was like, okay, we're not talking about black people. It's Black History Month. That's the least we can do. And, like, started, you know, making sure that every day during Black History Month, the whole school was learning about a new black um, kind of hero. I remember that. You're you're, you're an MPA. I'd be like, that's my sister. (laughs) Morning announcements. And we're like, we're going to do this. I did the same thing in high school. Um, but I remember in high school, um, really rebelling in my own mind, in my own way against literature Mm. because we had to take a British literature class Mm. and I was upset about it because I was like, I think we read not in the British literature class, but in the course of my high school experience, Chinua Achebe's, um, Things Things Fall Apart. And, like, that's the only author that I can really remember. And maybe there were others. Maybe I'm not giving it full credit, but that's the one that I can remember that was, like, a black author. Yeah. And then we had to take a whole effing class on British literature. And I, was, mm. and I remember purposely not wanting to read the stuff, the classics, quote-unquote, yeah. right? And being like, I don't, I'm not, I don't give a fuck. Like, where yeah. are the black authors? Right. You know, we were at Beowulf. We read Shakespeare. We read, like, all of this stuff. Yeah. And I'm like... Why is there not like an African American literature class? Mm-hmm. Like, why why do I have to take this? Right. It'd be different if it was an elective, right. right? But I think everyone had to take British literature. And I was like, I don't care about British literature at all. This doesn't speak to my experience at all. But so yeah, that's the other kind of context I remember thinking about race and like kind of my identity and really wanting to rebel rebel against um, what what I was learning. And we formed this little group, SUA, which was the acronym for my high school, but we changed it to be Sisters Under Attack. And I remember <laughs> us talking about the ways in which we felt um, wronged. And I can't remember all the ways now, but I do remember it coming up in the educational context as well. Oh, yes, Sister <laughs> Sisters Under Attack. Shout I... out to all y'all Sisters <laughs> Under Attack. Oh, my gosh. No, I hear you. Um, it's like, like, what is up with private school education? Because we had to read Things Fall Apart too, and that Did is you? the only it's the one it's like, like, is that the only approved? <laughs> um, but yeah, I hear you speaking toward you know that Eurocentric education and wh- how the white supremacy being and everything. Yeah. And those things. Did you? Because I think those are in those things that you talk about, and I'm sure there are other experiences but those seem to be things toward high school can you think about i'm just curious about that age because mom brings up um uh this idea right that you had really your first racist interaction when you were like three six months Mm. old Mm -hmm. right and so i just wonder um did did you then can you remember then um, and or now, worried about spe- specifically now physical s- safety. I can't. I like. I can't remember. Well, I'll get back to that. I can't remember thinking about physical being scared about physical safety um, in the same context that like black girls and black women would be scared about physical safety today. Mm. Like, police officers in schools, police officers outside of school, like, those contexts, uh, that context, but I do remember, more gendered, but I do remember 
um, feeling nervous about safety about dating. Mm. Right? And, um, and I think it ties in a lot to black women and black girls being believed and the value of black women and black girls, right? And um, when we talk about R. Kelly and mm-hmm. we talk about the victims that have mm-hmm. come um, up and like why that's been ignored for so long mm-hmm. and black women being valuable and being um, worth, having worth and being believed, right? Mm-hmm. Over the preservation of, the black, of a black man. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I felt the most unsafe within the context of dating relationships. Mm-hmm. I am getting chills right now, <laughs> and let me let me share why, because I think right, and I'm I I feel like within this space we've talked about holding each other accountable, um, and as we're learning and things, and so what I realized right, in my mind, right, we did this raising black sons, and I was gonna apply and thinking of the way mom and focusing on the way we were raised, apply the same lens like, um, why why didn't why didn't they raise you a certain way? Why didn't they raise us the same? Right. Um, and I hear it being about personality, and, and I get that. But um, I think I made the misstep of kind of applying, yeah, with a similar lens, like what, like who Nia would be afraid of when she walks out in society are the same people I'd be afraid of, mm. right? And that I think that is denying... Uh, you of your intersections Mm. and so I really appreciate you bringing up is like when we think about the attack of black women Mm. (laughs) it's a consideration of more than just unfortunately more than just um, this racialized white um, violence that is at the hands of not only white people but um, or, or white police but white people but it's like broader yeah yeah (laughs) wow and i feel uh i'm not gonna lie a sense of like sadness well one i think it's a a recollection like damn like i want i i I want to give you like more space to talk about that and 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 unpack that if if you'd like to of course but maybe a future episode yeah because i think that's a lot there yeah Um, i definitely do and i don't know i I'm not sure that it was on our parents' radar, right? Mm. Like, I don't know. When we talk about physical safety, I definitely, in the context of black men, I definitely think we frequently neglect the physical safety of black women in the Mm. same way. And I've heard a lot of reasons why that is, and mainly, um, if it, again, is at the the hands of a black man, Mm -hmm. we, you know, we want to... We, we, we want to spare black men from all the ramifications of being involved with the police and the carceral system and all of those things. Yeah. Um, we want to protect the race or make sure, you know, nothing bad happens to him while ignoring or um, kind of looking away from the victimization of black women. Right. So. Shout out to Meg the Scion. The Scion. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Wow. So... Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel more um, edified. <laughs> and we aim to please. We yeah. aim to please. And appreciative. Okay. Oof. There's a lot to unpack here. We definitely need to have another conversation at, about this, maybe at a later date. What do you think? I agree. I mean, black women, black girls, they deserve another podcast. At the very least. So we'll have to do that in the future. Uh, So listen in. Until next time, 
Stay strong. Hey, stay bold. <laughs>